Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called The Longest and Hardest Journey, the Second Sunday in Lent. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, March the 20th, 2011. About 4,000 years ago, a family of nomads left Ur of the Chaldeans, perhaps in southeastern Iraq near Nazaria. They settled in Haran, Turkey, on the Syrian border. In Haran, the family patriarch died, while his son Abraham started hearing voices. In time, Abraham believed that those voices constituted a call from God, and so he dared to obey those voices. Leave your country, God told Abraham. Leave your people and your family. Leave all that you hold dear and familiar. Go to the land I will show you. And the scriptures read, So Abraham left as the Lord had told him. He couldn't have known it at the time, but in leaving Haran, Abraham altered human history forever. He set out in faith, not knowing where he was going or even why he was going, except that God had commanded him. He defied both the inner propensities of human nature and the outer pressures of cultural conformity that lure us in the exact opposite direction. Most of us want to journey from the unknown to the known, from what we do not have to what we think we want and need, from the strange and the unpredictable to the safe and secure, and from mere promises to human guarantees. Whereas Abraham acted wholeheartedly but without certainty, we demand certainty and act timidly. God's call upon Abraham's life is a call that's repeated to each one of us today. It's a call that subverts conventional wisdom, and so it feels counterintuitive. God calls us to move beyond three very human, powerful, and deep-seated fears. First, the fear of the unknown that we can't control or ignorance. Second, fear of others who are different from us, inclusion. And thirdly, fear of powerlessness in the face of impossibilities, impotence. Abraham's departure from Haran was more than a mere change of geography. In leaving Haran for Canaan, Abraham left all that was familiar, all custom and comfort, family and friends, all the regularity and rhythm of his life. The only thing he would retain of Haran was the power of memory. He journeyed from present clarity into a future of profound ignorance. Abraham journeyed from what he had to what he did not have, from the known to the unknown, from everything that was familiar to all things strange. And so the New Testament commentary on his subversive obedience to God is found in Hebrews 11, 8, and 9. 
By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. With his journey into the unknown, Abraham embraced ignorance, relinquished control, and chose to live with confidence in God's promise to bless him in a new and strange place. But that required a second choice on his part. He had to leave not only his geographic place, he had to leave behind his narrow-minded, small-minded parochial vision, the tendency in all of us to exclude the strange and the stranger. God gave a staggering promise to this obscure Semitic nomad. In response to his obedience, God would make Abraham the benefactor of all the world. There's a simultaneous narrowing and expansion of God's action in history here. A movement from the particular to the universal. God called a single individual Abraham and promised him that he would inherit all the earth. There's a progressive expansion in God's promise. God vows to make of him a great nation. Paul describes him as a father of many nations. We then read that all peoples on earth will be blessed through Abraham, Genesis 12, 3. And once again, the New Testament commentary elucidates the Old Testament story. Through this one man and the one nation Israel, God made Abraham the father of us all. Romans 4, 16, and 17. In one particular person, God enacted his universal embrace of all humanity. In Romans 3, 29, Paul asked a provocative question. Is God the God of Jews only? Or is he not also the God of Gentiles? In contrast to every attempt to claim God as ours and ours alone, Paul says that in Abraham, God loves all people equally. In the famous words of this week's gospel, John 3.16, God so loves all the world. Our tendency is to fear the other, to marginalize the strange, to dismiss all that's different from who and what we know. In his book, Christ Plays in 10,000 Places, from 2005, Eugene Peterson comments on our sectarian, narcissistic narrow-mindedness. He writes, We exclude all who don't suit our preferences. We become a sect. Sects are composed of people who reinforce their basic selfism by banding together with others who are pursuing similar brands of selfism, liking the same foods, believing in the same idols, playing the same games, despising the same outsiders. A sect is accomplished by community reduction, getting rid of what does not please us, getting rid of what offends us, whether of ideas or of people. We construct religious clubs instead of entering resurrection communities. 
But with the call of Abraham, the long, slow, complex, and still continuing movement to pull all these selves into a people of God community began. The birthing of Jesus' community on the day of Pentecost was an implicit but emphatic repudiation and then reversal of Babel sectarianism. Instead of exclusionary parochialism, says Peterson, instead of defining people out of the community according to our own tastes and predispositions, God calls us to a universal and inclusive embrace of everyone and indeed all peoples on earth. There was one problem to God's promise of progeny to bless the entire world through a single individual who in obedience had journeyed into the unknown. Abraham and his wife Sarah were both about 75 years old and they might not have enjoyed our knowledge of human biology, but they knew that they were far beyond their childbearing years. Humanly speaking, they faced an impossibility that brought them face to face with their own powerlessness to alter their circumstances. As for bearing a child, barren Sarah and impotent Sarah were, according to Hebrews 11.12, as good as dead. But Abraham made a counterintuitive and subversive choice. He believed that God had the power to perform what he had promised. He believed that he's a God who, according to Romans 4, 17 and 21, gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. That is to say, Abraham moved beyond his fear of powerlessness to faith that God could, quite literally, make something out of nothing. After a few false starts, Isaac, the son of promise, was born. When God called Abraham, he subverted conventional wisdom and moved beyond normal and understandable human fears our fears of ignorance, inclusion, and impotence. Instead of lamenting his ignorance and the loss of control, he embarked upon a journey into the unknown. Instead of fearing inclusion of the strange and the outsider, he bore God's promise of universal blessings for the whole earth. In the face of his own impotence, he believed that God could do the impossible, and in so doing, Abraham became, as Paul says, the father of us all. The longest and hardest journey is not the exterior journey without, but the interior journey within. The geography of ancient Canaan pales in comparison to the complex geography of the human heart. St. Augustine once cautioned Christians, quote, whoever thinks that in this mortal life a person may so disperse the mists of bodily and carnal imaginings as to possess the unclouded light of changeless truth and to cleave to it with unswerving constancy of spirit wholly estranged from the common ways of life, such a person understands neither what he seeks 
nor who he is who seeks it. The season of Lent, then, is not merely about giving up chocolate, meat, or alcohol. Those are only external reminders of an internal transformation that we seek. Our ultimate journey is to move from a self-regarding heart curved in on itself to an other-regarding openness to the love of God, a love for others, and a love for all his world. And that's a journey that lasts a lifetime. For books this week, I review Suzanne Woods Fisher. The title of the book is Amish Peace, Simple Wisdom for a Complicated World. Grand Rapids, Ravel, 2009, 218 pages. Suzanne Woods Fisher, whose grandfather was part of the Old Order German Baptist Brethren Church in Franklin County, Pennsylvania, has written a simple book about the plain people of her Amish heritage. The Amish, like the Hutterites, the Mennonites, and many other groups, are only one of numerous Anabaptist groups that trace their heritage back to 1528 and the Austrian hatmaker Jakob Hutter, who founded a radical Christian community based upon the complete sharing of possessions, adult baptism, and nonviolence. For that, he was burned at the stake in the Innsbruck town square eight years later. His fledgling followers, although likewise persecuted, survived. The Amish population, far from being assimilated, has tripled since about 1950. Indeed, as Fisher points out, every year more than 8.3 million tourists pump about $1.5 billion into the economy of Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. Fisher organizes her 47 mini-chapters, each of which is two or three pages long, around five Amish themes, simplicity, time, community, forgiveness, and the sovereignty of God. Most of her book consists of real-life stories that she's gathered from her interactions with the Amish. Each chapter begins with an Amish proverb or witticism for which they are justly famous. And then, after the brief narrative, concludes with questions for reflection and a factoid about Amish plain living. In this way, Fisher introduces many of the themes for which the Anabaptists are rightly revered, like multi-generational family life, thrift and hard work, seeing the sacred in the simple, and honoring the dignity of manual labor. Fisher doesn't quite romanticize the Amish way of life, but nor does she dig very deep into critical questions like beards are acceptable but not mustaches, why formal schooling ends at the eighth grade, or why telephones are prohibited in one's house but not in the booth at the end of the street. In fairness, Fisher does include passing explanations for such practices, and it's not her purpose to offer fuller treatments that some readers might want. So you'll need other resources to dig deeper into Anabaptist history, theology, and life. 
I highly recommend two recent works, Mary Ann Kirkby, I Am Hutterite, 2010, and Rhoda Jansen, Mennonite in a Little Black Dress, A Memoir of Going Home, 2009, both of which are written by Anabaptist insiders who write with respect and fondness, but also critical ambivalence about growing up Anabaptist. The author is Suzanne Woods Fisher. The title of the book, Amish Peace, Simple Wisdom for a Complicated World, 2009. For film this week, I reviewed Temple Grandin, 2010. Claire Danes stars in this HBO biodrama about the famous autism activist and animal scientist Temple Grandin, who was born in 1947. The film has won numerous Emmys and Golden Globes. Temple Grandin herself helped to make the movie, and her running commentary about its production and the special features after the end of the film are even better than the movie itself. There she affirms just how well the cinematography captures what it's like to grow up autistic. The lack of sensory filters, extreme sensitivity to sound and light, the social awkwardness and isolation, and extreme frustrations on the part of Temple's mother. Grandin didn't speak until she was four years old. Although school was horribly frustrating, she was, in fact, exceptionally smart, and at each step of the way, she was lucky enough to have understanding teachers. Today, Grandin is famous for having devised the so-called hug machine, which is still used today. For many years now, she's been a professor at Colorado State University. I highly recommend this film as a way to increase one's understanding of and empathy for people with autism. The title of the film is simply Temple Grandin, G-R-A-N-D-I-N, an HBO biodrama from the year 2010. And finally, for the season of Lent in poetry, we've posted a poem by Gerard Manley Hopkins, 1844, to 1889. The title comes from the very first line, No Worst, There Is None. No worst, there is none. Pitched pass, pitch of grief. More pangs will, schooled at four pangs, wilder ring. Comforter, where, where is your comforting? Mary, mother of us, where is your relief? My cries heave, herds long, huddle in a main, a chief woe, world sorrow, on an age-old anvil wince and sing, then lull, then leave off. Fury had shrieked, no lingering, let me be fell, force I must be brief. Oh, the mind, mind has mountains, 
Cliffs of fall frightful, sheer no man fathomed. Hold them cheap, may who ne'er hung there. Nor does long our small durance deal with that steep or deep. Here, creep, wretch, under a comfort serves in a whirlwind. All life death doth end, and each day dies with sleep. Gerard Manley Hopkins, No Worst There Is None. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, March 20th, the second Sunday in Lent. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.